excited to have you with us at Our Father's House. Whether you are watching by live stream, social media, or television, we are so honored to have you. Our prayer is that wherever you are, you will encounter the glory of God like you never have before. Now, let's go into service and see what God has in store for you today. Praise the Lord, everyone. This is Pastor Justin from our Father's house. We're so glad to have you join us today for another podcast as we go into Revelation uh, chapter number two on uh, the church of Pergamos and Thyatira. We want to be focused on, on a couple subjects today on interceding to dethrone principalities and powers, as well as unmasking the Jezebel spirit. So there's going to be a lot to cover in this uh, message today. These are teachings that we had actually done um, probably about a month or so ago on these chapters, but we're not able to broadcast them through uh, Facebook Live or live stream. And so we're going back and doing the podcast of these messages. That way you have access to both uh, um, chapters two and three, because we'll get into the uh, chapter three on the next podcast, and then uh, also stay up to date. That way you have all of the material information that you need from the book of Revelation. And of course, chapters two and three really deal with God speaking through Jesus Christ, speaking to pastors, angels of the house uh, of each of the churches, of the seven churches of Asia Minor that John the Beloved overseen as an apostle. And so let's get right into the word. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read out the Nasby version. It says, And to the angel of the church in, per- in Pergamos write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. My witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some of you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who is in the same way holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, to him I give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no man knows but he who receives it. And so what I want to detail here today is, again, how Jesus introduces himself to these churches and the message he has for the church, as well as, you know, their recommendations, as well as their compliments of what they're doing, and that if they repent of where they're slacking, there is a reward for them. And I believe this applies to the modern day church. Jesus is introducing himself, and uh, so many of us are familiar with the Jesus on the cross, but few know him as the Jesus of Revelation. We know Jesus died. We also know Jesus resurrected, but he's ascended with power and authority, and we need to listen to the message that he's given us today. And so to the church of Pergamos, Jesus Christ introduces himself as a warrior and soldier, the commander-in-chief of our spiritually armed forces. He has a sharp two-edged sword in his hand. The word two-edged literally means double mouth. It indicates that when we speak what God's word says, it's the most powerful weapon that we possess. So it's more than just 
um, speaking his word to be a witness or to preach a message, but it's also to pray. God's word is a weapon in our hand and in spiritual warfare in the place of prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, for the word of God is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So here is what this sword coming out of the mouth of Christ in Revelation chapter 2, what it signifies. Number one, that God's word is alive and effective. It's quick and powerful. It's effective wherever it strikes. The mission of this sword is not to kill, but to bring life, setting people free from bondage. So in other words, it's, it's exposing those things in this leads to the second part. It's discerning and revealing. Revealing. It's God's word discerning our thoughts and motives, revealing our true passion and heart. So by revealing our true passion and heart, and it makes us alive because it's setting us free of those things that's not of Him. Number three, it exposes and pierces. God's word uncovers and exposes our weakness, revealing who we truly are. And finally, it's, it also is judgment. Twice that Jesus is mentioned to fight against people with the Sword of his uh, sword of his mouth, once to the church of Pergamos in Revelation two sixteen, and also to the nations in chapter nineteen verse fifteen. To some, God's word can be a judgment, but for others, it can set people free. It can bring revival. It can awaken and quicken your spirit, but it can also expose and pierce those things that are not a Him. And so, I'd rather God's word fight for me than against me. I mean, I don't want to be on the side of sin and my adversary, but I want to be on the side of righteousness in truth because his word fights for me and defends me. Amen. The word Pergamos actually is translated to mean united or married, which could uh, be equivalent to uh, God being married to the church or his people. And of course, this city, uh, the church itself was struggling with the culture of its city, being married to the idolatry of that land, really divorcing uh, as the bride of Christ. And so I want to encourage the church that if there's anything that does not look like him to be disengaged, to be disunited from that so we can be united with the spirit of Christ, with the presence of God. God. Uh, because of the sin and the idolatry that uh, dominated the city of Pergamos, uh, many suffered great persecution. Uh, in the midst of it, they were not ashamed of God, but they fully trusted to not deny His name. Amen. And one example that it gives in Revelation chapter 2 is a man by the name of Antipas. There's been a lot of um, uh, discussion throughout church history of who Antipas was, um, and some later writings indicate that potentially he was a bishop in this church in Pergamos, and his belief he was put to death by being enclosed in a brazen bull-shaped type altar, according to Dake's uh, commentary there on the New Testament. According to the Passion Translation commentary, he was martyred by refusing to deny his faith, and he was made a sacrifice to idols. He was dragged to the Temple of Diana, placed in this bronze bull-like altar, and roasted alive. Eastern tradition states that Antipas is one of the 70 disciples whom Jesus sent out. And so again, that's a lot of uh, history and a lot of tradition. But what you but what you see here is that this is really persecution. So when we as the American church talk about not being able to uh, assemble like we typically do due to a COVID-19 crisis, or we talk about uh, somebody talking about our church on on Facebook or, or something of that nature, we need to look at church history and really begin to understand what... Uh, persecution really is. And so the city of Pergamos, let me give you some 
history on the city it was built on a hill overlooking the area and the cap and it was a capital of asia minor it was a stronghold again for idolatry and pagan temples including one that was dedicated to caesar and another uh, to zeus and so uh, that's why i believe in verse 13 god uh, calls this place as where satan's where satan dwells or where his seat really is because of the demonic powers that were in operation in the region in fact even control much of the uh, of the area and so it had on a cliff overlooking the city a throne like altar to Zeus which could also be a reason it was called Satan's seat so again a lot of idolatry in the city and so uh, you can see some evidences of where Satan uh, kind of ruled and reigned so to speak in this area there was another Greek god that was worshipped during this time known as Asclepius Asclepius was a serpent god uh, and its image or symbol was a serpent entwined around its staff. When they needed healing, they would come to the temple, the snake, because it was known as the snake god of healing. Everyone who entered into the complex passed this symbol and credited any healing that took place to this god. And I also believe that's why you see on the back of a lot of ambulances this very symbol of a serpent wrapped around a staff. And it goes back, it actually translates back to the time in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. Verses four through nine, where uh, there were poisonous snakes uh, released upon the children of Israel as a, a form of judgment, and so they, because they were continually complaining against God, Moses, the leadership, and so because they're continuous complaining, God told Moses, "I'm sending these serpents out." And when they were being bitten, so and many were dying, they repented. They cried out, "Moses, please pray for us!" And they were crying out in repentance and prayer. And so what happened is uh, God told Moses to put a to build a serpent upon a brass pole to make this and then when someone was bitten when they looked upon this image they would be healed miraculously healed and it foreshadowed it was a picture of Jesus who was to come then in John chapter 3 that as he would be high and lifted up uh, all men would be drawn unto him and it was a picture of him becoming sin even though he knew no sin so that we could be healed and delivered from the poison of the enemy but what happened was in 2nd Kings chapter 18 verse 4 the Bible teaches us the king Hezekiah actually broke this very image in pieces because people were beginning to worship the image rather than the one it represented. So instead of worshiping God as the God of healing, they were worshiping and made an idol out of the very thing that God uh, had intended uh, to be a representation of him. And so it was destroyed by King Hezekiah. But now you have it translated throughout uh, Greek culture here and worshiping this false God. And so what would happen was in Asclepius, temple priests would be interviewed by potential patients to determine whether they could receive healing or not. Interesting enough, they turned away people who were dying or women who were ready to deliver babies. They did not want any death to taint their God and the worship of their of their God. And so once they accepted the condition, so you know what, this could be a potential for, for a healing, uh, they would take them through an underground tunnel and into a huge treatment room where they would sleep, uh, possibly after being uh, drugged or, or medicated, 
and the patients waited to receive a vision of treatment, and they would reveal to the priest who would prescribe treatment. Oftentimes, this treatment was related to water, such as baths or drinking a sacred spring water, exercise, dietary changes, rest, attending a theater. For Of course, that's for mental capacity, mental rest. And so once they were healed, they would bow down on their knees before their, the statue of this God, and they would thank Him for their healing and give Him gifts. And what was interesting enough, and this is in correlation with what Jesus spoke uh, to the church, they would inscribe their name and the ailment from which they had been cured on a large white stone as a testimony to their God. Interesting enough that the Bible says that if we overcome, He will give some a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no man receives but himself. So in other words, God was stamping a permanent healing upon sons and daughters, whereas this idol uh, was offering things that was temporary or even things that may not be true, but they would uh, worship this false god anyways. And so you see here the the importance of, of why Scripture says what it says. And of course, if you study actually uh, people being cured from poisonous snakes today, interesting enough, um, I don't know if they still do this today or not, um, but years ago, scientists were discovering antibodies for poisonous poisonous snakes. And so one of those sources was actually a lamb and they would... Uh, and, uh, Put uh, this poison in this in, into a lamb of a serpent, and the blood of the lamb would immediately go to work producing antibodies. So they'd extract these antibodies from the blood of these lambs, and they would use that blood to fight off as a source of antivenom um, for people who were actually bit by snakes. And so I say that to say it's the blood of Jesus is the greatest antidote. It's the greatest form of antivenom for the poison of sin, sickness of the devil in this world. I believe that's also why the blood of a lamb was put on the doorpost and the upper post and that, that and that death passed over on the last plague of Egypt. It passed over the firstborn of Israel when it's seen the blood of the Lamb covering because Isaiah 53, 5 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our pieces upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So there's healing, there's breakthrough, there's victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 11 through 12 says, It's put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. And so here is the point of why the blood of Jesus has to be on our sides because it's the key and tear down principalities and powers. It's not by our own mind or power, but by the strength of Jesus. And so what we've got to do is fight from a seated place of authority in heavenly places with the blood of Jesus being upon our life and walking in the authority on earth as Jesus is in heaven as he is so are we in this world amen and so we have got to walk in that authority and release breakthrough release the word of God speak use the sword of the spirit the sword of Jesus for us rather than against us by declaring his word from a seated place and let God fight the battles for us. Amen. I believe our uh, responsibility is obedience. I don't believe we need to go pick a fight with the principality of poverty or something like that. But if we're obedient in our giving, obedient in helping those in need, obedient in praying for the sick and seeing them recover, when we become obedient to scripture and we worship and have a worship lifestyle unto the Lord Jesus Christ, then I believe God is enthroned with our worship and is drawn like a magnet to our obedience and invades our region of influence and territory with His goodness and mercy. So our obedience is so important. 
That's, and I also believe that's why Jesus commended the church of Pergamos for holding his name and did not denying him in the midst of persecution. Because when you're really living right and you're going for Jesus, there are sufferings, there are troubles and trials. Amen. Many are the afflictions, the righteous, but the Bible says God delivers us out of them all. But here's what's interesting is Jesus rebuked this church for holding fast the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Uh, we discussed this in an earlier, uh, earlier teaching. The Nicolaitans really uh, taught... Uh, a community of wives and and to eat meat sacrificed to idols and so they they uh, welcomed and embraced a perversion of marriage as well as idolatry and Balaam uh, when you go back in scripture was was a true prophet of God but he allowed his flesh to get in the way the king of the Moabites who was Balak he was afraid of the children of Israel because they had saw because he had saw what they had done to the Amorites and he wanted to drive them out of the land and defeat them so he sent messages to Balaam the prophet to try to curse the nation of Israel, and he did not want to do it because he feared God. But when they began to offer him money, and that money began to entice him, he said, I won't curse them, but I'll show you how to get them cursed by their God. And it was to use the Moabite women to be an attraction to the men of Israel. That way they were drawn to idolatry. And so they were and so they were being bought out. And so Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam is a perversion of prosperity. It's a perversion of the truth of the gospel. It's teaching people why you while we sit under our crystal chandeliers in church and our sacred pulpits, right, and receive tithes and offerings, but yet at the same time, if we're not careful, we'll teach people how to live in a curse rather than walk in obedience to God and His Word and the fear and reverence to the Lord. And this perversion of prosperity and perversion of the gospel must stop in the church so we can walk in the fear and the blessing and the favor of the Lord. Second Peter chapter two verses fifteen through sixteen says, "Which have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity." The donkey speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. So God tried everything in his way, even making a donkey speak to try to get him to turn away from going after the lust of his flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But yet he went after it, and he uh, forsook. Uh, the way of God and really became a false prophet of that generation and left a legacy of what happens when a true prophet becomes a false prophet through greed and lust and the perversions of this world. And so it's important that we begin to uh, separate ourselves from sin and cling to that which is righteousness and truly walk in reverence to God and His Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9-11 through 11 says this, I wrote unto you an epistle not to come with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters. For then you must need to go out in the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man is called a brother, be a fornicator, covetous, or an idolater, railer, drunkard, or extortioner. With such a one, no, not eat. For what I have to do to judge them that are without, do you not judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among you that wicked person. This does not mean that we don't reach out to the lost and be a lot to those because it takes to be on a relationship with people to uh, bring them into to to uh, not only to know church or be familiar with Christianity, but come to a relationship with Christ. Because if we act like we're better than the world and don't engage in a relationship with them, uh, they then they're not. Then Jesus isn't really that attracted to them because because the world has a false idea and a false image of who Jesus is. So when the church rises up and really begins to build a relationship with people, we can be the example of Christ to them. But here's the issue. 
When we accompany ourselves in such a way that we begin, instead of them becoming attracted to the Jesus within us, we become attracted to the sin that entices them, and we're drawn away from the gospel, following the doctrine of Balaam, we begin to bring a curse on our life, and we're called to function and to operate in the blessing of God. So I want to encourage us today to um, find a shift and find a change in that. Amen? It's because I don't, again, I don't want God's Word to fight against me. I want it to fight for me. I want it to fight for you. And he said, if you repent... Turn away from these false doctrines, not be enticed by the culture of a satanic principality, but begin but begin to live in my freedom and authority. He said, this is the three things I promise you. He said, I promise you hidden manna. Psalm chapter 78, verse 25, manna is called angel's food. It was promised to those who overcome. It was the taste of heaven. In other words, when you refuse to be enticed by the world, you will taste the glory of heaven. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that fell from heaven. He is what preserves us in the wilderness to get us into the promised land, right? Amen. So in other words, instead of uh, instead of evil dominating and dictating my life and my way of thinking, God's Word overcomes my mind and the revelation of His Word. I taste and see that He is good and I overcome. And it's a foreshadowing that I don't have to live bound by sin, but I'm heading to His promises for my life. Amen. And finally, he said, I'll give you a white stone with a new name written. Interesting enough, according to Matthew Henry's commentary, it says this, A white stone was an absolution from the guilt of sin, alluding to the ancient custom of giving a white stone to those acquitted on trial and a black stone to those who were condemned. The new name is the name of adoption. Adopted persons took on the name of the family in which they were adopted. None could read the evidence of a man's adoption but himself. He cannot always read it, but if he persevere, he shall have the evidence of sonship and the inheritance. So what is God telling the church of Pergamos? Jesus is saying here that you will be liberated from condemnation. You will receive the spirit of adoption whereby you can cry, Abba, Father, and you can receive an inheritance as sons and daughters of God. This is the result of saying no to sin, no to false doctrine, a refusal to be bought out by the world and compromise your faith and to cling to that which is good. Amen. It is it is so good to know that we are more than conquerors through Jesus if we choose to do what is right and be holy as He's holy. Amen. In the in the last church in Revelation chapter two is the church of Thyatira. Revelation chapter two verses eighteen through twenty nine says, "And the angel church in Thyatira, right, the Son of God." who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like furnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not repent of her immorality. But I'll throw her her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the children will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give each of you according to your deeds, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, so shall they call them. I place no other burden upon you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast to I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds to the end 
and I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus Christ introduces himself as the Son of God whose eyes were a flame of fire and feet were like brass. His eyes as a flame of fire represents his judgment that he sees and knows all things. It, it signifies the burning passion he has for his people and souls. His feet were like fine brass, which is precious, if not more precious, than gold. This is a com- The word uh, fine brass there is a compact Greek word, chalkos in Lebanon. Chalkos means hauling out like a vessel, mainly a coin in Lebanon, which means an incense or frankincense pertaining to white smoke. This represents God's ability to possess through power and prayer. So when we mingle our prayer with God's power, it represents that he's walking in authority over our lives. Amen. So here's some history to the church and or excuse me to the city of Thyatira. It's a small town located in inland in the inland part in Asia Minor and known for its color dyes. The city was constructed in a valley with many trade routes running through it. The chief idol at the time was Apollo, which is linked to the power of the sun, according to the uh, according to the Peristone commentary on the New Testament. Apollo was also known as a god of many things, including music, light, prophecy, and healing. And so that's some backdrop of, of uh, history of this city. Jesus commends his church in Thyatira for Thi- uh, which means a continual sacrifice. That's what the name Thyatira means for the works of charity, service, and faith. God will commend us for love, service, and faith. So I want to encourage you guys today to continue to love, continue to serve, and never give up. Never quit on your faith. Continue to because f- you need all three of these uh, virtues and capacity to fulfill the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though they did these things, the Bible says Jesus still rebuked them. He did not uh, rebuke them out of anger uh, because, listen, our God is a loving Father. If there's rebuke, it's to discipline us to reflect His nature, character, and image to those around us. Amen? And so that's the point of a rebuke. It's not to single out. It's not to humiliate. It's to discipline us. That's why public disciplinary actions on a child is is so damaging, but secret discipline is to build the character and faith. And you don't want to rebuke out of anger because you can do things more out of anger. You can correct more out of anger and do more damage than when you calm down, give yourself time to think and analyze the situation and do it out of love, discipline out of love rather than anger. Amen. And so that's what we have here is some is a rebuke because of his love for them. Amen. And there was a snake and the reason being was there was a snake slithering into this church and it was through the spirit of Jezebel. Amen. And so Jezebel, of course, is not a popular name, you know, in the Bible. In fact, many people in the church have labeled someone being a Jezebel. And you better be careful when you do that stuff. Uh, you know, in, in old in old time churches, they, they consider Jezebel somebody that wore makeup or something of that nature. Their dress or skirt didn't go all the way to their ankles or something. But, you know, Jezebel is so much different than that. It's not about an appearance. It's about an it's about a 
character. So let's go back to some history of Jezebel. When Elijah prayed a 63-word prayer and fire fell down from heaven and he put to, and he had put to death the prophets of Baal in the groves, instead of Jezebel converting, the Bible says she put a death threat, she put a bullseye upon Elijah and threatened his life that his life by that time tomorrow would be like the prophets of Baal and groves that he killed that very day. And so he ran in fear. Uh, she was so evil that Naboth, who was a man of God, was not willing to sell his vineyard because according to the Jewish law, um, you don't sell your inheritance that you receive. And so she encouraged King Ahab to let her take the reins of this situation. And she had Naboth put to death so, Ahab, so King Ahab could take over the vineyard. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25 says, There was none like Ahab, which sold himself to do to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. So a spirit of Jezebel stir, stirs up and motivates wickedness in someone's life. It's not about the appearance, but it's about the character and nature of our heart. And so that's what you have here in Scripture is this spirit of Jezebel rising up. And so what God is encouraging here is to unmask the Jezebel spirit because it was destined for sickness because it was luring adulterers to suffer in a great tribulation. And then the children was destined for death and defeat because of the adultery and the idolatry that it was becoming attractive to the leadership of the church. Of course, this is Figurative. This is in a spiritual sense, a spiritually, uh, a spiritual disease, and death was coming upon children. Many people that were begotten by this false doctrine, people that had become disciples of the false teaching through this spirit that was in operation, right, was leading people into sin, and it was bleeding destruction upon this church. And they were to stop the bleeding through repentance. They were given a space and time to repent. And here's what's happened to the church today. The church oftentimes looks like a Halloween celebration. People come in wanting God's blessing, trick or treat. Hey, give me some of that blessing from God. But they wear masks. They're hiding who they really are. What God is looking for is transparency in the church for us to become real about our nature, about our struggle, about what we need to lay down, right? So we can lay down sin, false doctrine, anything that's not like Him that's bringing self-destruction in order to reflect the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And so that is what he's given us space to do is to repent or otherwise there's severe tribulation. There's severe repercussion if we don't repent of sin. Amen. And so we have to expose any false teaching, anything that lures us into adultery, idolatry, anything that doesn't look like him. Right. And he said, when you unmask this Jezebel spirit, get it from away from among you and repent of your sins. He said, there are some rewards. Yeah, he said, you'll be given authority over the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron as vessels the part are broken in pieces. Amen. Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 through 12 says this, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron and you shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoicing with trembling. Do homage to the Son, and that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. He, and so, in other words, you can either have the nations as your inheritance, or you can continue to entertain a Jezebel spirit of control and manipulation into wickedness and evil. I would rather have the nations as my inheritance 
inheritance, winning souls, placing the jewels of souls in the crown of our Savior, than to be enticed by things that are that are tractable to my flesh. Because again, it's about presenting Jesus and letting people be attracted to the real Jesus who denied himself, took uh, took up his cross, carried it to uh, with the help of Simon the Serene up to Golgotha's hill, and became the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Amen. It's about ruling and reigning with Christ, becoming king, a kingdom of priests upon this earth, man. Amen. We don't have to wait to die and go to heaven to rule and to reign with him. We're to rule on earth now as he is in heaven. And then he said, the second reward is you'll be given the morning star. Who is the morning star? It is Jesus. Amen. Uh, the bright and morning star was a cosmic reference to the planet Venus, which reached its maximum brightness before sunrise and shortly after sunset. Some months it is seen first in the sky before the sun ri- rises, introducing a new day. What is Jesus saying? And that was according to Perry Stone commentary. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, I'm the bright and morning star. You will have me. I will give you a new day, a new star a new beginning. Amen. If you will repent and, and unmask this Jezebel spirit, get it away from you. Repent of this idolatry and spiritual adultery, if you will, and cling to righteousness and purity. You will become a kingdom of priests ruling and reigning with me. Amen. And that you will have my presence and I, and I will be a light to your life. Amen. I believe it's so important for us to live a lifestyle of repentance. I believe it's important for us to give up these things to so that principalities and powers Powers can be dethroned and a Jezebel spirit can be unmasked and we can walk with authority and rule and reign on the earth. Amen. So I just speak a blessing over you today that if there's any area of false doctrine that you believe or living in accordance to that you need to repent, that you lay it down at the feet of Jesus and walk in His goodness and mercy. Amen. If you've been fighting and struggling in your own flesh and you've been fighting among yourself and trying to figure out how to navigate through life right now on your own, I encourage you to let the sword of the Spirit, the Word of Jesus, fight for you. Speak God's Word. Don't fight in the arm of the flesh flesh. Don't make uh, your trust in your own ability and skill, but put your trust and faith in Him. Be seated in heavenly places, and I declare, let the Word of the Lord fight for you and with you rather than against you. Amen. I hope that you enjoyed this teaching on Revelation chapter 2 on the churches of Pergamos and Thyatira. I hope it's been a blessing to you in this podcast. Uh, We hope to soon do chapter 3 with you guys as you grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of the Word of the Lord. Amen. May God bless you until we see you, meet you, or worship with you in Jesus' name. Amen.